Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Daniel Lev Skolnick. Daniel is a humanist speaker, a graduate of Yale University, and a community organizer interested in creating a powerful spiritual alternative to traditional religions. He's also the host of the Reenchantment podcast and has been one of the core collaborators on this conference. So thanks, Daniel, for all the work you've put in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Daniel, super excited to be having an opportunity to chat in kind of like a new a new format. I know we've been collaborating for the past uh, couple months, but it's cool to be able to actually pause and sit down and talk a little bit about what is, you know, where is up with going after being in the weeds for a while and also a little bit about kind of what brought us back here. Yeah, no, excited to be here, Casey. And uh, yeah, glad glad to you know, take a step back and, and talk about the, the big picture. Yeah, yeah. So I think we originally connected through Casper and Angie. I know you kind of participated, I believe, in the gatherings they did. Yeah, maybe just the start. Like, I think giving a little bit of like your story of what brought you to this work could be a cool place to be in. And what kind of expressions has this work had in your life before this? I think I, well, I grew up in an atheist household. Parents were born in the Soviet Union, came over. And that was kind of, you know, my base level uh, worldview and assumptions about the world. Uh, and in many ways, I maintain that to this day. But even as a young, a young boy, I started to realize that, um, well, there's a kind of a uh, profundity and beauty to the world that would uh would break in on you know on me in, in sometimes unexpected ways and that's what led me to initially want to become an artist uh, and a writer and i continue to write to this day uh, but i realized that you know over the over the years as the years went by writing was a tool and a method to get towards something something deeper and you know if i was honest with myself, the thing that it was is a kind of spiritual life and a, and a spiritual uh, reality that I basically started to, to look for ways in which to, to find that uh, and to find those deeper layers of meaning in my life. First in the, you know, in the humanist community, um, I spent a time at the humanist hub with Greg Epstein and uh, around Harvard. And then uh, kind of going out on my own, uh, moving down to New Orleans and experimenting with, I'd say, more, I don't know, uh, radical or, or experimental forms of, of meaning making, of, of ritual making. And yeah, so it's been, it's been a journey of following, following my, the things that excite me, the things that really bring me closer to that place of, of awe and wonder and transcendence that... Uh, that I, I've been trying to catch and embody for you know almost my whole life. I, I really resonate with that. I know, like uh, we've spoken a bit before, but you know, I also kind of came from this. You know, my family wasn't necessarily atheist, but I definitely came from like a, a stronger atheist background. And uh, you know, I think these questions of like wonder often provide a pathway in for folks to start experimenting with something more. Like strong atheism, you know, in some ways is great. It's a, you know, it's a reaction to certain things. Certain supernatural beliefs that may no longer be helpful, or certain ways that institutions are, you know, maybe causing harm to kind of oppressed groups or, or you know, like the LGBT community, all these things. 
but also like you know Richard Dawkins kind of you know God is not great all this stuff. It, it kind of rejects a worldview, but it doesn't really provide an, another way. My experience of kind of really connecting with meaning, or um, you know, this idea that like we just make our own meaning. That's all. That's all there is. Is is that works for some people, but for me, there's always been this, this sense of like wanting to connect with something greater, wanting to experience something more than just or, or or even even in that quest of creating your own meaning. There's a real question of how do you do that? How how, how do you create something that is you know, very much your own, very much apart from any kind of uh, dogmatic or, or prescribed way of looking at the world, but that still feeds a, a sense, a need for living on, on a grander scale, almost on a, on a mythical kind of uh, scale and not, not give up your common sense and not give up, you know, the scientific progress that we've made or those ways in which we've come to understand the world that are really effective and really accurate. You know, how do you feed, how do you do that? And I don't think atheism, uh, as it's been, you know, at least in the past couple decades, has any really great answers for how to do that. And it's interesting, too, I think this kind of conversation between science and these kind of newer ways of knowing with more traditional wisdom, right? Because I think I, I was reflecting in a conversation with uh, Sebane, one of our other speakers last week, and, you know, I came into mindfulness through kind of like secular mindfulness uh, interventions, right? Mindfulness based stress reduction came across it at a Buddhist center in New York, pretty much a secularized, some would say whitewashed version of Buddhism, like very science focused and being someone who kind of, you know, was rooted in the scientific materials tradition, perhaps coming into all this stuff. Before I took the course, I like looked at all the peer reviewed studies on it. And it's so interesting to look at like this thing that has been so meaningful in my life. Like if I was born 30 years prior, when there wasn't all this peer reviewed literature on it, I don't know if I would have found it. So there's also this kind of, I think, interesting humility that, that can come up with with just regards to like, you know, science being a really good eventual way of knowing what's true, but also can like miss total things. Like I think another really interesting example is from, from the medical world, like there's this whole study of placebo surgery. Have you ever heard of this stuff? Oh, I, I've, I've looked into it extensively, yes. There's these limits to what we know. And, and I think there's this like interesting balance to try to hold of like, how do we honor what science brings, right? Which is kind of, helping us get closer to what might be true or helping us, I think, in many ways, uh, let go of hypotheses that, you know, may no longer be supported by data. But then to still say, you know, like science doesn't generate hypotheses. Science really is about like generating hypotheses to come from like somewhere totally else. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole uh, discussion to be had about, you know, way epistemology, basically, right? How do we come to know the truth? How do we come to know what we know? And, and that's, in, that's in the realm of like, you know, wh what spiritual practices are effective, which, you know, is placebo surgery a real thing? Or how does, how does well, it is a real thing. How does, how does it work? You know, how do placebo effects actually help us to feel better, to change, to kind of uh, self-heal in, in astonishing ways? What is going on under the surface? And I guess there's a, a risk that, you know, I'm sure you've, you've come across this as well in the realm of trying to combine uh, spirituality with modern science, saying that, look, you know, science doesn't, doesn't have all the right answers, and, uh, or at least not yet, and there's all this ambiguity. So, you know, actually, all the stuff we've been doing and saying in the spiritual world, you know, that's all probably true, and science just has to catch up to us. And, you know, I, I think that's, um, 
yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's a, those who are overly hasty, I think, to, to kind of grab the spiritual stuff and start using it, uh, miss the really hard work of that science provides. And yeah, have you, have you encountered that? What is it? What are your thoughts on, in, on that dynamic? Yeah, I think what it brings up, I, I think I've encountered, like, I think it's interesting. I think it's either there's like two sides of the spectrum. I think you need to be like full on, like science is going to understand everything. And eventually we're going to take all the magic out of the world, right? Then there's like science has its flaws. So like really we need to get back to just, you know, purely new ways of knowing. And then I think there's this interesting middle ground where it's kind of allowing personal experience to come in and really honoring non-scientific ways of knowing, but then kind of putting that through the rigor of scientific study and scientific experimentation to see, to help us, you know, better understand how things are actually working. Like I think there's this one professor that I, I ordered into class on psychology of religion. And, you know, he's talking about, he's professor of doctor of philosophy of religion and also doctor of philosophy in psychology with a, a strong focus on kind of like the neurophysical, uh, like biofeedback and other kind of forms of psychology that really work with like the, the nervous system. And it, it, his whole thing was like any spiritual experience is going to be mediated through the nervous system and through the body. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not, you know, there, there could still be a theology that understands your God or spirit in some way, kind of interacting in the body. We just, you know, we can say that, okay, well, you, you know, administer kind of you know, entheogens like psychedelics to, to, to a person, they have a spiritual experience. We're going to understand what's happening in their brain doing that. Well, maybe that's just the pathway that like spirit uses to reach people, right? Um, and this is just another way to reach it. I think the other thing that comes up though is, and so, and, and kind of with that is this like epistemic humility with this idea that like you can take any set of facts and come up with almost infinitely many explanations for it that take it into account, right? You know, you just talk about like Richard Dawkins and a lot of the new atheists, they target a very specific brand of Christianity. You know, it's very like literalist and very fundamentalist and um, don't kind of, you know, really, they don't really kind of work with. The criticisms of the work that are coming from like the Nobel Prize winning scientists who are also devout Christians and have found a way to kind of like integrate their faith. You know, there's kind of like, in some ways, it's like a little bit of a straw man argument against religion as opposed to really looking at like what is the kind of more tenable kind of integration of science and spirituality. But I think the other thing, and then I, I will pause because I, this is, I, I, I'm getting already, I think we can kind of like go back and forth with ideas like in a very, with a lot of energy. But I think the other thing that's really interesting that I've seen especially around like quantum mechanics, which is like taking ideas from quantum mechanics and then like tying them very loosely to some kind of spiritual concept and using it as truth that the universe acts this way. And I think there might, like there's definitely an interesting kind of, probably I, I do not understand quantum mechanics or quantum physics. I bet that were I to understand it, there'd be some like really trippy spiritual philosophical takeaways from it. And I think that often... It's just like a little bit more tenuous the way these things are brought together. But maybe it works for people. I don't know, right? When I was in college, when I, uh, I, I wanted actually to become a physicist at first through high school and, and in the first few years of college, then I realized that I liked thinking about physics a lot more than I actually like doing physics. Uh, <laughs> it's tough stuff. It's really hard. And I think that's when it comes to quantum mechanics, you know, I, I can't claim that I've tinkered with the formulas in, in, a, in a really serious way. And I can't claim, you know, I'm a quantum physicist, but I've done a fair bit of YouTube video watching about how quantum physics actually works. And, and it's fascinating. And it really, it really is, 
it really is a humbling thing to to realize how little we know about the the mechanics of our universe and how little we've we know even a century after quantum mechanics has been discovered we've made a lot of progress there but the the thing that sometimes infuriates me is that yeah you have you have very spiritual people you know especially in the new age movement you know lifting terms from quantum mechanics and and applying them you know with as you said a very tenuous connection to uh to to these spiritual concepts because sometimes the language is very similar energy in quantum mechanics energy and spirituality you know the uh waves and, and vibrations all of these things that intuitively metaphorically sync up but but are actually talking about two vastly different things quantum mechanics mechanics is talking about the physical reality and spirituality is talking about our psychological reality about our uh intrasocial reality our um you know the kind of a combined uh, intrasubjective worlds that we create as a species the myths we create the ways in which we perceive you know the worldview in a mythical way and you know i find i find that the it, it, it's interesting because it really demonstrates the power of science and the prestige of science, even among those people who want to transcend it or want, or, or even sometimes reject it. They still take language and concepts, uh, or even like turn to certain scientists who are you know, some would say pseudoscientists for authority, because it really demonstrates the power of science in the modern world. And, the, and also the power to uh, or how frequently science is misunderstood in the modern world. Yeah, I think what it brings up, I, I think I've encountered, like, I think it's interesting. I think it's either, there's like two sides of the spectrum. I think you need to be like full on, like science is going to understand everything. And eventually we're going to take all the magic out of the world, right? Then there's like science has its flaws. So like, really, we need to get back to just you know, purely new ways of knowing. And then I think there's this interesting middle ground where it's kind of allowing personal experience to come in and really honoring non-scientific ways of knowing, but then kind of putting that through the rigor of scientific study and scientific experimentation to see, to help us, you know, better understand how things are actually working. Like, I think there's this one professor that I, I ordered at a class on psychology of religion. And, you know, he's talking about, he's professor of doctor of philosophy of religion and also Doctor philosophy and psychology with a, a strong focus on kind of like the neurophysical, uh, like biofeedback and other kind of forms of psychology that really work with like the, the nervous system. And it, it, his whole thing was like any spiritual experience is going to be mediated through the nervous system and through the body. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not, you know, there, there could still be a theology that understands your God or spirit in some way kind of interacting in the body. We just, you know, we can say that, okay, well, you you know, administer kind of you know, entheogens like psychedelics to, to to a person they have a spiritual experience we can understand what's happening in their brain doing that well maybe that's just the pathway that like spirit uses to reach people right um and this is just another way to reach it i, I think the other thing that, that comes up though is and, and so and, and kind of with that is this like epistemic humility with this idea that like you can take any set of facts and come up with almost infinitely many explanations for it they're taken into account right you know, you used to talk about like Richard Dawkins and a lot of the new atheists, they target a very specific brand of Christianity. You know, it's very like literalist and very fundamentalist and um, don't kind of, you know, really, they don't really kind of work with the criticisms of their work that are coming from like the Nobel Prize winning scientists who are also devout Christians and have found a way to kind of like integrate their faith. You know, there's kind of like, in some ways, it's like a little bit of a straw man 
argument against religion as opposed to really looking at like what is the kind of more tenable kind of integration of science and spirituality. But I think the other thing, and then I, I will pause because I this is I think I'm getting already. I think we can kind of like go back and forth with ideas like in the very with a lot of energy. But I think the other thing that's really interesting that I've seen, especially around like quantum mechanics, which is like taking ideas from quantum mechanics and then like tying them very loosely to some kind of spiritual concept and using it as truth that the universe acts this way. And I think there might like there is definitely an interesting kind of probably I I do not understand quantum mechanics or quantum physics. I bet that were I to understand it, there would be some like really trippy spiritual philosophical takeaways from it. And I think that often it's just like a little bit more tenuous the way these things are brought together. But maybe it works for people. I don't know, right? Yeah. 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 And I was I wanted to I wanted to uh, to bring that up earlier, right? You know, on on the one hand I was mentioning this kind of epistemological, how do we know what we know? Uh, very, very much engaged with philosophical and scientific rational debates. On the other hand, there is, you know, how do you live? How do you actually live your life in a way that's emotionally meaningful, that's symbolically meaningful? And that's, that's uh, the kind of area that uh, I think modern atheism, humanism, you know, is really weak uh, in and that's the kind of areas that I've been trying to experiment and do do work in those because I really value the kind of irrational ways of looking at the world, ways that are about feeling, ways that are about embodying whether it's a kind of yeah a kind of uh, really emotive sense of beauty of uh, transcendent reality and, and these things are. You know, as you mentioned before, there's a risk of uh, science kind of flattening them. Like you can do a bunch of studies about a certain certain thing and and kind of take the take the life out of it. But playing in that realm of well, actually, we we don't we don't really know what is going on here, but it feels damn good, and and it makes me wonder, like you know, what what else don't I know? What else brings us to a place of humility and a place of uh, that life is worth living? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, it's so interesting because right? it almost brings us to this point where it's rational to suspend rationalism and have just a pure experience of something. Because, you know, like, especially with like meditation, I know in my own experience, like doing it as a 20 minute a day secularized practice as part of a like stress reduction course, mindfulness based stress reduction is what it's typically, you know, is, is the kind of the intervention that, that a lot of the initial research on meditation. But doing like meditation for that is like a daily, you know, self-care practice, productivity practice is different than doing it to kind of like connect to some transcendent reality or to, to kind of let the ego um, slow down enough to like be able to really see nature, to see a plant, to see a forest, to see, you know, to hear the birds going on in the background in this on a day to day and to connect to some matter of like the sacred, like some matter of ultimate concern. It seems like even if science is part of the like justification like maybe part of the infrastructure or the bridge that helps people kind of like walk towards an experience like eventually to really like eventually there seems to become a point where letting go of the rationalist understanding and you know really finding meaning becomes really important yeah so i mean some of the work that i've been doing here in new orleans i've mentioned is creating, you know, rituals and creating, um, you know, using what I call natural temples to to bring people into different states of 
consciousness, different different you know ways of experiencing the world. And you know, I've been you know, I, I, I can't claim that I'm a, I'm a master at this in any by any means. I'm still very much learning, still very much experimenting. I've learned a lot from the different communities here in New Orleans that have been doing this for for years and years now. Many of them are new age communities. For before coming down here, I I had a I'll be honest, I had a kind of disdain for the new age, and and I still think that there's a there are a lot of issues that, that need to be worked out there. But there are also really exciting ways in which they're they're trying to create something new. They're trying to create new ways of being spiritual in the modern age that are not traditional, that are not Christian, that are not like Buddhist or Hindu. Yeah, I, I think a big part of my work has been bringing people outside into beautiful sacred spaces, spaces that are not designated as sacred, but that you know, when you walk into that space, whether it's, you know, a, a grove of trees like uh, on the banks of the Mississippi or, you know, uh, even even a, a plateau uh, out in the in the, the eastern eastern edge of the city uh, where the grass just goes and goes and goes. And there are snakes and, in, in, you know, slithering around and there are, uh, you know, abandoned uh, warehouses where, you know, the bats hang low and the, the walls are covered with graffiti and like hieroglyphics. There's beauty, this otherworldliness that I... I really personally resonate with, and that when I bring other people there, they, they I notice they just go quiet. You know, the, the mood changes, and people can sense that they've entered into another realm, uh, that they've entered into a kind of sacred time or sacred space. And, you know, it's, that's, that's the kind of thing that I love to, to bring people to and love to show people, because that... Once, once they're in that place, I, I don't, I almost don't have to say anything else. I just, I just let them, let them exist there because it's such a precious thing and such a rare thing in certain cases. On your recent podcast, I think you, you explore this really well with the, the idea um, from I think Celtic like mysticism of like thin places, which I know is a uh, is this sense of like there's this the spirit world I guess or the spiritual spiritual reality and our reality and are separate, but in certain places the barrier is really thin. You know, I think it's interesting is what I noticed living in New York through COVID was there were a couple of spots where I was just like hit with an experience of what you described. Like one one of them was when I was just in a park overlooking the water at sunset. And I just stopped and like watched the sunset for 20 minutes. I was there to do something else. I just paused. And I realized that I hadn't watched the sunset for like you know, six months since my last meditation retreat. Like I realized on meditation retreats, I watch the sunset every day. Living in New York, there is not a single day when I just sat and watched the sunset. You know, and and it was also one of the few times because it was over water that I could see more than like a hundred feet in front of me. Because in New York there's like you look and there's buildings, right? Maybe you can see up a, a narrow avenue, but that's that's about it, right? And so there's a sense of horizon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and you know the the other like I, I never liked museums growing up, but I before COVID hit, I used to go to the Met. I started going to the Met in the fall of twenty, uh, I guess twenty nineteen, once a week, and just like walking around. And it was again this sense of like expansiveness, being in a place with large ceilings and large, but also just you know these these art, this art that was symbolic of people's expression uh, of what mattered to them over the course of centuries and, and, and millennia, right? Was I think interesting about what you said before about you can just bring people to these places and almost don't have to do anything. Is like 
you know, when I was a kid and I was brought to museums, there was like a focus, there was a goal and there was, you know, you were learning. Right. And, you know, I've been in, even I've probably been in that park where I had this like really nice sense of experience before, but maybe I was meeting a friend or there was some reason or I was walking through it on a way. There's something radical about not just being in a place that has this potential, maybe this latent potential to kind of open this up to awe, but actually pausing and not having a thing to do, but just allowing to like experience it and, and slow down. Yeah, w- William James spoke about this when he's in, in his book, you know, Variety of Religious Experience. He talks about the aspect of spiritual hearing, you know, being able to go quiet inside and to really listen to a place. And, you know, that, that's, that's something that I sometimes talk about in, in the rituals that I put on in these kinds of ceremonies, you know, listen to what the place is saying, because there's a, as you're saying, like the thin places, the, the saying goes like, you know, heaven is only three feet away and in some places it's closer. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, I, I believe that every place is, can be sacred. Every place can be holy. Just some are more, it's just more obvious than others in certain places. And, uh, you know, it's about, it's about noticing like aesthetically what resonates with you. And, you know, I find my, over the years, I've, I've kind of developed a, a habit for myself or, or almost a kind of rule. If I am going about my day and I hear, and I hear that thing, and I, if there's some spiritual sound that, that catches my attention, it doesn't matter where I'm going. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I have to stop and I have to listen to that sound and I have to hear it out. Uh, and sometimes it fades after a few, a few moments and other times I have to just turn and, and walk towards the cemetery where it's coming from or, you know, go down to, to the river or find, uh, go into that abandoned um, ruined bridge that, that, that's calling to me and, and exist there for, for however long that feeling lasts because there are only so many times in our lives when we can enter into that space and, and live in that feeling the vast majority of the time we don't, we don't live in that place. And it's every missed opportunity is, you know, that it's a tragedy. Well, and it's, it seems like there's also work to be done to like prepare ourselves as fertile soil to hear uh, the, the callings of the potential, you know, sacred wellsprings in our day-to-day life do well. Like I think about all the times I've gone hiking in the woods and just thought through for the first hour I've had I've been thinking about work, right? Or thinking about other like, you know, relationship stuff or, or all that. And yeah, I um you know, I've been trying to hike more recently. That's something to do kind of during the pandemic to get in touch with nature. And it's been interesting to experiment with like solo hikes versus going on hikes with kind of my uh you know, people members of my household. Yeah. But like finding the ways to to be open to to that kind of experience, or to be open to seeing the tree on the, on your street is sacred, as opposed to a feeling you have to go to kind of like magic place. Yeah, yeah. I think he, what you were saying about going hiking uh, on your own as opposed to other people—that's something that I uh, I speak about in 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 the podcast on, on thin places too, right? The uh, the power of solitude. Also, William James spoke about this too. 
every time I, I read I read that man's work, I, I I'm, I'm astonished at how much uh, how much he he figured out so early on. But he spoke about how uh, when we're in a public setting or we're among other people, there's almost a kind of um, there's literally like a kind of social pressure to how how we orient our bodies, how we speak, how we act, how we uh, how we think. And when we're alone, when we're in solitude, that pressure is 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 removed, and suddenly we can we still have the pressure of our of our of our own minds of our own selves, and also strangely the the fear or the expectation that someone might see us that might might see us um, kneeling down before a tree or staring out at the at the sky, and what what could, what would they think of us if they if they caught us doing that? But yeah, as, as you said, there's um there's a kind of practice and preparation that that um you know uh really really helps to make this make this feel normal makes it make it feel normal to like just you know go up to a tree put your hand on its on its old you know rough uh, wrinkled bark and just stand there you know while people walk by and really just not not care really be there with with this other other living being you know it takes practice it takes it takes calm it takes uh, you know, a real clarity about what it is you're doing and why. And I think meditation is, you know, it, it's one among, I think, a number of different tools that, that, that can help us uh, really center ourselves in those moments. Well, I, I know we're coming up a little bit towards the last maybe five, 10 minutes. And I wanted to save uh, a little time maybe to go personal. Because I think that like, you know, there's a lot of stuff to talk about around, you know, ideas and, and around you know what it's like to kind of bring in invite people into thin places or, or natural tempests yeah i know in other conversations we've talked about you know this these questions around what what does it mean to explore creating gatherings that meaning outside tradition what does it mean to grow as someone who is you know trying to do this and um i know in the past you mentioned you know Consider go school and things like that. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, now as we are in the early months of 2021, um, pandemic, you know, who knows how long it may last. I'm, question, I'm curious, what, what questions are alive for you right now in your work or, or your life? That are... What questions are alive for me right now are how am I going to continue working on myself? How am I going to continue really, really look, taking a hard look at, at who I am and, and what, what do I need to do to become a better thinker, a better leader of, of these kinds of experiences? How do I make sure that I'm both being authentic uh, to myself and, and also doing, doing what's right for others? not getting blinded by ambition, not getting blinded by, you know, what I think is right in terms of, you know, how my own ideas about what a, what a, a good life for others would be or what, what, what secular spirituality like should look like. Yeah. And doing, doing, doing that, that internal work while also figuring out how, how to create things like this conference, like the summit that are useful for others how to create a, you know, a podcast that's useful, a, a life coaching style that's, that's useful, re- really useful, you know, that people feel like they're 
their lives are being changed by it. And not like I'm the one that's changing it, but I'm the one that's providing resources, tools, structure for them to change their own lives. That's, that's what I'm really interested in. How to grow personally, how to affect change. It sounds like really, really good questions and, and how to have humility with finding a way and non D way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what about you? What's, uh, what's alive in, in your life right now? Yeah, man. Uh, I appreciate the question. It's, um, I think a lot of what I'm thinking about lately in some ways is similar. It's, you know, partially what are the pathways for growth for me? Cause there is not like an explicit, like two year ordination track for the kind of things that I'm interested in doing, you know? Yeah. But, but I think also one of the things I'm thinking a lot about, it gets this, you know, what you were talking about, humility is all this question of um, how to balance both having an opinion about kind of, maybe pathways for growth or what a good life might mean. And also leaving room for people to come to their own answers that are different. And, and when designing spaces, when designing kind of communities or other gatherings, um, how do you really draw a line in the sand and kind of have an opinion that is meaningful enough that it kind of attracts a group of people that are really, you know, co-resonating with each other, if you will. They're, they're kind of in harmony in terms of, Supporting it. Cause I think one of the things, you know, there's a recent paper that I read on why strict churches are strong. And, uh, interestingly, kind of recently in, here in, uh, Hawaii, I've come across the Zen Center, which I think is a great example of it. But, you know, it's this idea that one of the reasons why strict churches are strong, besides some of the kind of stuff that might be get thrown around in psychology or the, you know, or other disciplines where they will say, oh, people are joining, you know, fundamentalist religions or they're joining strict religious communities because of some kind of psychological manipulation or other kind of, you know, lack. It's, it, it tends to be very negative about the person joining. This paper written by a, a guy who does a lot of stuff around economy, economics and religion, puts forth the idea that strict churches or strict religious communities are strong because there's a really high barrier to entry, right? There's like a real strong adverse selection where the higher the cost of joining a community, whether it's for religious community, whether it's like, okay, you've got to wear robes in your daily life, which stick you apart from other people, or you've got to stick to a very specific diet, or you know, the community starts to monopolize more than every time. That also kind of works as a mechanism to filter out people who are less committed to whatever pathway of growth the community is putting forward. And so you get a group of people who are more committed and thus are maybe able to kind of like be within that community, there's just a higher level of commitment and momentum and maybe you're held to a higher standard than you would be in a community where the folks uh, or, or there's just a, a much broader kind of variety of commitment levels and of, of momentum around um, whatever the path is. And so I think that's a really interesting example. You know, they, they show kind of how stricter sects within various religions tend to be growing or shrinking slower than more liberal sects and like tend to have higher average attendance and all this stuff. But, and I think as someone who's like designing for community, it's a really interesting question of what does it mean to both create something that can really help make a difference in someone's life, but that doesn't become unhealthy in a way. Right. And that, that doesn't put forth a kind of, a path that can then be internalized of like one is not good enough unless one pursues this path and, and puts authority within the institution as opposed to the individual. 
It's a long, long answer. Yeah. It just reminds me of the two conversations I've had uh, recently for the Open Div Summit about you know new monasticism, Tashin Fogelman and uh, Adam Bucko, who both are are kind of doing, getting at this thing, Tashin from the Buddhist perspective, uh, Adam from the Christian uh, perspective, but creating these, these monastic spaces that are, that are open enough and flexible enough, you know, to, to take people who are actually may not identify as Buddhist or may not identify as Christian and yet are seeking uh, deeper spiritual formation. But both of them talk about how there's a lot of structure in, in their, you know, monastic lives, in, in their monasteries, you know, in some ways, very orthodox, but they're orthodox, not in a fundamentalist way, they're, they don't exclude uh, other, ki- other spiritual traditions or truths. They're very inclusionary, uh, but they recognize the power and the need for that kind of demanding practice, you know, meditate uh, for several hours a day, you know, do, do prayers every morning, every evening, do really, you know, difficult, time-consuming internal work. And that's, that's uh, you know, that's the real, the real good stuff, you know, that makes for strong souls, strong minds, honest minds too, I think. Yeah, I've, I've been really inspired by both of those conversations with them. And, and, and I think they're, they're definitely people that I'm looking towards, you know, in, in my thinking around how to, how to do this well. Well, maybe that's a great place to uh, slowly to, to wind down. Definitely recommend checking out those interviews for folks who, who have not yet listened. But yeah, Daniel, any other closing thoughts, closing words? Um, and, and I guess also, where should folks find, uh, find out more about you and the other kind of interviews in which you've done uh, online outside of OpenDiff? Yeah, um, I mean, a re-enchantment, uh, re-enchantment. It's uh, the podcast that I host and run. That's probably uh, the best place to find more of my writing and my interviews and thinking about all of this kind of work. Yeah, and any any last closing words? I don't know. Uh, uh, good night and good luck. I love it. We're, we're, we're about a week and a half out of the conference. I know you and I have both been putting in work and in interviews and stuff like that. It's been a crazy time, but I'm really excited. I hope you, I, I think you're excited too. Just to, to, you know, we got like almost 200 signups right now. I think it's going to be a really good, uh, good group of people. All right, man. Jeff. Yeah, I'm excited for it. All right. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the Open Div Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.